G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. As a parent, you'll be the first to agree that you have the highest expectations for the safety of your children in church. So we're turning our attention today to best practices for churches safeguarding our children in church. And you know what that means? It means all the other activities that are associated with your church. Well, our special guest today is an expert in creating and maintaining risk management plans for church environments. You'll know that over the years, being bombarded with stories of institutional child sexual abuse in churches, a lot of goodwill disappeared. And for a wide section of the community, the integrity of all churches had been compromised. Well, there are no churches that can relax given the high community expectations that children attending church programs will be protected. Well, we're connecting once again today with an organisation that's just released its 2022 Child Safe Organisation Tips and Domestic and Family Violence Policy. Alicia Reader-White is Founding Director of Equipped for Grace. Alicia, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's wonderful to be here. Alicia, I remember a conversation we had a while back and uh, just so informative. And even for anyone who's associated with church today, my encouragement is not just to listen in, but have a pen and paper handy because you might have a few notes that you can take on some things that happen when you're involved in church. Let's talk child safeguarding. What I said there in the introduction, parents have this high expectation. That's true, isn't it? And churches have to rise to that expectation. Absolutely. Parents have a very high expectation of what their children are exposed to and what children are um, essentially, you know, how we're helping them maintain their safety and and keeping uh, the goodwill of the churches as well. Uh, I'm assuming you're a parent. Well, I'm a parent. In fact, now I'm a grandparent. Uh, you know, I have to admit that these days, getting a few extra grey hairs. <laughs> but we are concerned about our children. And for people who've been a part of church life for a long time, you might have seen sometimes when there's been a really lax attitude to caring for the protection of children that most people in church will have seen change dramatically, especially over this last decade. Are there still some that are lagging and dragging their feet, do you think, Alicia? Yes, absolutely, Neil. So I'm a mother of two. I've got two little ones. And again, you know, and it really doesn't matter whether it's um, in church, but, you know, sports, schooling, every single area um, that we allow our children to, to go into, we expect them to, well, the organizations essentially to have the highest standards in, in protecting our kids. And, you know, we're expecting governments to come along on the ride as well as our organizations. Interesting that you take it beyond where we're more focusing today on churches. And this is a responsibility for every organization in the community that's dealing with the safety of our children. They've all got these expectations on them, too. Are there some groups better than others that are running these things? Like, you know, if you're in a school, obviously you've got people who are uh, employed to actually implement their policies 
volunteer organisations, do they differ from ones that are professionally run? Uh, sometimes. I think it's all about the culture and the leadership that's there, to be honest, Neil. So um, there are some organisations out there that are volunteer run but have incredibly high standards of child safeguarding pardon me, um, with regards to, you know, how they hire, uh, how they manage their staff and especially how they involve their children and their parents within these, you know, essentially the journey of child safeguarding. And it has dramatically changed since the Royal Commission, which launched almost 10 years ago in 2013. I imagine there'd be some who are saying, oh, yes, we've got a document that's full of all sorts of good things that we put in place years ago. And it's sitting on a bookshelf somewhere or in a file, doesn't come off the bookshelf or out of the file all that often. Is it the case that a lot of organisations are ignoring what they already have? I mean, how often do you have to revisit this sort of policy to keep it relevant? So what we find, um, you know, there's differing legislation throughout all of Australia. So each of our eight different states and territories have different legislation on what they expect. Um, the minimum standards essentially from, you know, our national principles of child safe organisations essentially is around like an annual review, annual training, regular updates, or if some significant issue happens within your organisation, your church, uh, your youth group. Um, but, you know, legislation and especially legislation here in Queensland um, demands that people review this on an annual basis as well or if, if a significant issue happens. And it really isn't just about the document. You can't just be ticking a box to say that you've got a document that's in a tray or somewhere on your, your files and your computer. It's something that needs to be lived and breathed with really strong leadership that's committed to outward facing child safeguarding, um, you know, as a presentation to all children, parents, the community, visitors, whoever you've got coming through your organisation, but all of the inward workings as well. So do your staff and volunteers, do they intimately know essentially what your policies and procedures are stating? So not just your code of conduct to say, yep, we're going to keep all kids safe, but the ins and outs of how you're managing your risk. Do they know that? Do they live and breathe it? Well, incredibly important to be talking about a topic like this. And uh, let's even connected to the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, their census details. I mean, there are people who are speculating, why is it so many are opting to say they are not Christian uh, these days? I mean, I'm putting you in the deep end here on ABS statistics because the number of people who are identifying as Christian has dropped down to 44%. Yes. Uh, those who are saying, oh, I just, you know, I'm not going to be concerned about that religious stuff. I'm going to put no religion in the box. And that's gr risen to something like 39%. So we've got these sort of official national statistics and there's speculation in there that all of this bad publicity that's come uh, with the institutional sexual abuse issues has caused people to actually turn away from identifying with church. This is how important your role is in all of this. How do you see those statistics? Is there a connection here? Should we be really concerned about these things? I definitely think we should be concerned. And the church did take quite a big hit in terms of reputational damage when it came to the Royal Commission and those investigations. And I think it's definitely around to the very laxed views, the she'll be right kind of attitude. Um, you know, even looking at children as not essentially having as larger a voice as the organisation or the leadership in the organisation. So essentially giving children a voice and making sure that they're safe within our organisations is absolutely top priority. So, 
Well, the kids can't speak for themselves. No. Uh, as parents, uh, we're the ones who need to be the ones who are ex- putting forward our expectations. Do you think that in some of those churches that you think are a little lax on this, that maybe parents either don't know or don't care about how those sorts of things are being implemented? What sort of responsibility is there on the shoulder of parents here? I think there's a lot of responsibility on the shoulder of parents. You know, churches are are a large, essentially, especially in the Western churches these days, are are large businesses with lots of things to think about. And unless you're, you know, constantly advocating for the rights of the child and, you know, speaking about the way children feel safe. So there's a massive difference um, from what we know in research between what children say that they are safe and they feel safe. And we just know that where children are safe and they absolutely feel safe, they, they flourish. When kids are out on a youth group activity or, you know, they're going on a camp or those sorts of things, I mentioned in the introduction, sometimes we think of being safe in church as being safe in church on Sunday, but there's a huge number of uh, you know, a wide variety of activities that happen with kids and youth uh, in church life. All of those things are really front and centre, aren't they, too, in the sort of responsibility that churches have to take responsibility for? Very much so. Like I would absolutely advocate if you're creating child safeguarding uh, strategies and resources for your team, your staff, your volunteers, even you as a parent who could be going out on these types of uh, you know journeys and expeditions with your kids. Um, it's not just about you know um, making sure they're having a great time because essentially what I look at is you can have the best policies, the best uh, sorry, you can have the best programs, the best staff, but unless children are safe in whatever environment that they're in, you know, none of these programs, none of your staff really matter because, you know, we could see, you know, that 40, 50, 60 years ago, um, when all of these child sexual abuse issues were coming to the forefront, you know, you probably had some amazing, well-intended, fantastic people who were running eloquent programs, um, but all of that gets thrown out the window if kids aren't safe. And I'm not just talking about, you know, child sexual offending or things along those lines. It is about a holistic area of child safety. So are they um, safe from all types of harm, you know, emotional harm, physical harm, neglect, all of that kind of stuff. When you said a little earlier there's a face for uh, what you do with your child's safety, is there something we ought to be expecting from the leaders in our churches uh, that are regularly coming up with something that's presented from the pulpit, so, you know, which is usually the place where things are communicated to uh, to the people in church. Should this sort of stuff be coming, you know, if there's a youth group activity, is there something that should be always a little, uh, you know, a line on the bottom of that screen ad and, and showing parents that there is attention to these details? How should that work, do you think? I think those are some great ideas, Neil. <laughs> Any kids pastors out there or youth pastors out there, definitely take note of some of Neil's fantastic ideas today. <laughs> um, but it, it's definitely something that needs to be constantly reiterated. And I think not only to make children feel safe, that if there are any issues, you know, this is how you can come and talk to us and this is how you can report it. But the same for parents, that if there is any of that uneasiness, this is what you can do about it. And we have a risk management plan for heading out on our fantastic 
fantastic youth camp over a couple of nights. Um, you know, whatever it is that we might be doing, we're heading out to the car park on Sunday and we're all going to play basketball or whatever it is. Don't worry, parents. You know, we've got a risk management plan in place. Your children will not get run over kind of things. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, some people will be thinking, wow, do you have to have uh, a lawyer on the youth team or on the children's ministry to just make sure that all these rules and regulations are met? And for a lot of people who are thinking, well, we're just struggling to keep our kids and our youth ministry even happening at all. But there's all this red tape, there's all these regulations and somebody's got to be aware of them. This is, I imagine, where you come in because uh, you do this sort of thing as training. Yes, absolutely. And to be honest, it would be great to have a lawyer on board on every church to mitigate all different types of risk and, and know what we're doing. But child safeguarding is, it's no longer a thing of the past. I think um, when it comes to child safeguarding, it really does need to be at the forefront. Um, I know that a lot of churches struggle with just getting volunteers and just getting programs and those sorts of things. But the organization that I run, we provide holistic child safeguarding practices. So as I said, they differentiate between each different state and territory. And so so what, what we do is we are able to, um, you know, identify what it is that your state and territory and your legislation, you know, asks of you to do and then correlate that not only with the national principles for child safe organisations, but really tailor it to different demographics. So what is the, um, you know, who are the people who are coming to your church and what's the risk present to you there? What is your physical environment? What is your culture? What do your leaders have to say about it? And really tailoring the training, the policies, procedures and the comms, the, the communication strategy is absolutely key because as you said, most, I, I would expect that most churches have a child safeguarding strategy. It might be in a drawer and it might, you know, look amazing. But unless that policy is essentially, um, you know, spoken to and spoken about on a regular basis with communication that's suitable to each different um, audience. So, you know, what's good for mum and dad to know about? What's good for kids to know about? And what's good for our staff and volunteers to know about? So having that excellent communication strategy as well is absolutely key. Now, throw you in the deep end here, uh, insofar as uh, some people might be thinking all of this sounds too hard but I know that there are a lot of people who lead churches and they say well what we want is a growth strategy we want to be able to ensure that our church is going to be able to grow it sounds to me like while this sounds difficult it actually is one of those foundations that will help churches to grow long term Absolutely. And if we do look at the, you know, the last 40, 50 years and those ABS statistics that we referred to earlier, Neil, you know, you could have those amazing programs and, um, you know, strategies in place. But I would highly advocate that child safeguarding is the crux of what you need to be doing to grow your church, to grow your believers, to grow the amount of people in faith and keep them coming back consistently throughout the years, knowing that if something was to ever happen, the church had my back. The church supported us. You know, our pastors were there. They advocated for the needs of victims and the needs of kids. And those who are most vulnerable, those without voices, they were heard. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. An important conversation today. Our special guest, Alicia Rita white She's founding director of Equipped for Grace. And we're talking about 
child safeguarding. What happens with the safety of children in your local church? And it's not just church on Sunday. It's church that happens when your kids are off on an excursion or there's a camp on or there's a youth group activity. We're talking through those sorts of things. You might have your own questions. 1-800-316-316. Before we move on, why don't we take a call from Bill in Frankston in Victoria. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Oh, g'day there, Neil, and uh, thank you very much for your um, big guest speaker. Look, yeah. look, I just want just in terms of the, um, the 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 government statistics in terms of people uh, not not claiming to be Christians. I'm just wondering whether um, whether your um, whether your guest could comment on on whether having having amazing leaders like um, uh, Donald Trump and uh, Scott Morrison claiming to be Christians and going to church and things like that. I'm just wondering whether their behaviour and lifestyle could have anything to do with people wanting to distance themselves from calling themselves Christians. Bill, it's an interesting dimension, although it's a little bit off topic. Uh, Alicia, you might have a thought or two here, but in leadership uh, conversations about who's setting the standards and who's actually the role model here. It does come to our national leaders as well, but uh, we'll come back to what's happening in church life. But do you have a a thought or two for Bill? Bill, that's an amazing question. (laughs) And I think there would be very divisive um, opinions out there. I think personally for me, um, you know, irrespective of who the leader of the nation is, even the leader of our churches, um, you know, because every everyone can fall, it's really just constantly keeping your eyes on Jesus and making sure that he is the ultimate leader, um, essentially, is is what we're putting our lives to and listening to, you know, over and above even, even the leaders of our nation and constantly praying for them. Bill, thank you so much for your call. What you're saying here, I think, is just uh, profoundly accurate. It's that it doesn't matter who is leading us, whether they are the worst uh, person in the world (laughs) or whether they are the best that humanity can produce, all of that falls short from where we're really aiming, and that is keeping Jesus front and centre the highest one that we are looking to impress, not humans and not their role modelling, but the role modelling that's given to us by Christ. Wonderful, wonderful insight. Alicia, come back to our conversation around some of the statistics, and even as Bill is reflecting on how that might affect those statistics, there was something important about the statistics as they did come out, and that is single-parent families on the rise and there's some vulnerabilities. What are your thoughts here for single parent families and the safety that they are expecting for their children? Yes, absolutely. So um, our 2021 census found that in Australia now we have over 1 million one parent households. And so that's an increase back from 1996, um, which is about 14.5% to last year for 15.9%. So a big increase um, in one parent families, you know, all those amazing unsung heroes who are provider, who are parent, who are carer, who are mentor, who are absolutely everything to their kids. Um, But unfortunately, it does come with some risk. And there is a number of research articles that are out there that indicate that adult men from single parent households are actually at greater risk of child sexual abuse, unfortunately. And so even when some of these research um, projects, they um, adjusted for, you know, socioeconomic status, um, they still found that children from single parent households were at an increased risk of child sexual abuse. Um, Although a lot of um, the risk, it was still higher in those low socioeconomic households, unfortunately. 
Um, so they, the researchers really looked into, you know, what is that thing that independently contributes to having higher risk from, you know, your sole parent families. And that's not to say that having, you know, both parents there removes risk completely. And so they really looked at what are some of the psychological, the emotional aspects and needs um, of these children who have one parent, um, only one parent at home. You know, are they away working? Um, you know, are they emotionally, physically or even psychologically unavailable to these children? And, and is that what's contributing? And so what they sought, um, you know, some of their theories were, was that a child needs to find some adult to bond with when that unavailability presents from their actual parents. So attention-seeking and affection-seeking needs, um, which may not be fulfilled at all times. Um, you know, some of our, unfortunately, the predators who are out there are very good at seeking these type of vulnerable and isolated children. And we know that from the general predatory behaviour of, of sex offenders as well as other offenders out there. And so all these unsung heroes, whilst they've got everything else on their plate, um, and just need to be aware of this, this risk as well. And essentially, from like a government and a policy perspective, having a look at how we can continue to support our, our parents, our single parents out there, as well as the organisations who are providing that particular support and you know uh, care and supervision to the children as well. If you're in church, uh, you think all the people in our church are nice people. Uh, you're indicating here that there is predatory behaviour that goes on. There are perpetrators of child sexual abuse who will like to attach themselves to your local church. If we were getting inside the head of one of those perpetrators, a predatory child abuser, you're saying here that there's actually some vulnerabilities for those single parent families. Uh, those sorts of people, they're looking for the vulnerabilities in that church life and they become quite expert at doing that. Yes, they absolutely do. You know, even online predatory behaviour at the moment, we're seeing um, quite a spike in predators, you know, working together, sort of uh, engaging in conversations with young people and then having other predators who are essentially advocating and legitimising who this other person is. And so not only in person but online as well. So in person though, um, if you've got strong child safeguarding um, strategies, policies, procedures, um, those people who would, you know, engage in that kind of predatory behaviour won't essentially be able to get in because what you've got is not just, you know, a working with children check, which you've ticked that box, but everything else that encompasses keeping kids safe, you're living and breathing as well. Sometimes we might think uh, we want all of the things in our church uh, to be attracting people to church. Uh, what I can hear you say here is there are some things you ought to be saying in church that should scare some people away and you want to scare away people who are coming from that predatory behaviour. Yes, very much so. Okay. <laughs> you know, as as a parent, I would I would very strongly want that in every single area um, that my children are involved in. You know, church as well as outside the church. You might have a question. You might have a comment. Let's take another call. Brendan is in Serena in Queensland. Hi, Brendan. Welcome. Hello, Neil. Hey, Brendan. Uh, just a question. Yeah, just a question for the guest because I'm a member of Scouts and I've actually grown up in it and they've gone down a very similar route to what you're talking about and I think they've gone too far and put too much of a burden on the volunteers and it's really just killed the organisation um, a bit of a controversial opinion there but I, I believe it has um, as someone who used to volunteer a lot more 
now they've introduced a whole bunch of stuff and I have to sit online through about 24 hours every other week if I want to be an active member of online training, which is the most boring thing I've ever done. Is that going to happen here or do you have something else? Brendan, good insight there. Alicia, is this all too much? It's just too burdensome for people who are volunteers. Your thoughts here for Brendan? Yeah, Brendan, I, I do feel for you for, you know, a good 20 hours of online training um, every couple of weeks. Um, doesn't sound all that great, but my background essentially is in policy procedure writing um, for corrections. It's for youth justice. It's in child safeguarding now. And I would strongly advocate for ongoing information to be, you know, funneled through from experts, from professionals, from academics, from leadership, all the way down to the people who are working on the ground, but not so much as to make it burdensome, not so much to make it too complex. So whenever I develop any kind of training, my sort of stuff, it's, it's very user-friendly, it's short, it's concise, it's straight to the point, it's not overburdensome and, you know, we can get very tangled up in all of the things that we have to do but essentially bringing on, um, you know, a lawyer or, or someone like myself to really, you know, what are the key bits of information, let's just cut it down, let's keep it short and simple and even as we're seeing a lot of information being, um, you know, funneled out to us these days, it's in pictures, we're kind of going back to that hieroglyphics kind of phase, you know, icons, all of those sorts of things to make it very simple for people and not overburdensome. And, you know, I would hate to see the church get to a point where there is so much information being funneled down to people that they no longer want to participate. Alicia, let me ask you, uh, let's just bring this right into the, uh, the living rooms or the office or the car that listeners are right now and talk about some of the tips you might have for parents you're a part of a local church. What sort of things are you going to be aware of in keeping children safe? Yes. So, Neil, it's very important not only to have, you know, those strong child safeguarding policies and procedures for churches and expecting churches to do their utmost, but us as parents, we actually have, you know, quite a significant role or the most important role of having these conversations with our children as well and keeping them as protected as possible from our end. So some of my top tips around that is really around having conversations with your children having them early with your children, having them often very clear and in age-appropriate ways. And so essentially your children can know, you know, what it is that you're you're exactly talking about and wanting to protect them from, but them knowing as well that they can come to you at any time without fear of being punished if they find themselves in a tricky situation online or in person in churches or any kind of environment, um, that they can come to you. Um, secondly, helping them identify a few safe adults and empower them to speak up in simple steps if they don't feel safe. Um, you as a parent knowing and being very vigilant of the risks, um, so knowing that predators were actually often not only groom children but can actually groom families and adults as well and the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse really advocated for it to be a criminal activity and so some of the states and territories have actually brought in legislation now that um, says, you know, if you are grooming families, you you now can be punished for those sorts of things, which is amazing. Uh, just uh, hold up there for yeah, a moment. Yeah. Uh, what does grooming affect family look like? Is this sort of, uh, you know, 
extra intentional friendliness within the family. Uh, you know, you're over often. Uh, you're really, you know, doing stuff to win the hearts of the kids. Uh, is this what this looks like? Yeah, it's about building trust with the families and with the parents and the adults, the caregivers in those environments to have easy access to the children. So essentially providing a benefit to a parent or a carer with the intent of it being easier to access children. Okay, keep going. Some more tips. Yes, some more tips. So know that children um, and your children can't particularly differentiate between being safe and feeling safe. So if they're coming to you and they're saying, I really feel unsafe, but you like, you know, soccer's fine or, you know, your your church organisation, you know, your your kids' church on Sunday, that that's perfectly fine. Never kind of dismiss any of the unsafe feelings that your children um, come to you with whatsoever. Um, If your child is in that age group where they directly communicate with any coaches or youth pastors or any other kind of adults in positions of power, make sure you're monitoring these communications as well. A little bit of a break again. Yeah, yeah. Unsafe feelings. Uh, Your child comes to you and they are just reporting on how they went at youth group on Friday night. And they say something that you pick up as a parent. What sort of things are you looking for? Um, so you're kind of looking not only for that kind of physical unsafe, you know, I didn't feel safe being, you know, out at night or, or whatever it is, but like emotionally or psychologically unsafe, um, you know, they come home and they f- have a yucky feeling in their tummy or they're very nervous or, you know, just very upset about something Um you know, whatever it is, you know, you're, you're kind of prying into, you know, tell me more, kind of what happened, why are you feeling, you know, what's making you feel so worried, why don't you want to go back, those kind of conversations. So when children are actually indicating, I don't want to go back to youth group uh, or I don't want to go to the children's church activities, they might actually be indicating something a little bit deeper and you could explore that a little bit further because if it is this unsafe feeling, then somehow or other then as a parent, you're going to be able to take some sort of action and that might be that could be messy even. But, but, uh, but just digging that little bit deeper and finding out why your children are not wanting to go to the youth group or the church. And if it is one of these things, then you'd treat it very seriously. Very much so. So, you know, some of our, um, you know, even like new youth group leaders, you know, those kind of people who, who may not be aware of even like your physical touching policies, you know, you, they might be touching children a little bit too much than what children want to be touched, you know. Um, and, I've, you know, I would very much advocate for high fives, a pat on the back, those sorts of things. Um, but... Um, you know, some people might not be aware that, you know, you might cross a boundary if you're sitting there tickling a child or those sorts of things that make the children feel, you know, really rather uncomfortable. And it might just be, and majority of the time it is, it's a very innocent, um, you know, activity or action that's taken place by by an adult that you can say, look, this has made me feel unsafe. This has made my child feel a little bit unsafe. You know, what are your policies and procedures around how you interact with children or who takes your children to the bathroom? You know, those sorts of things. And while we might feel a little bit safer if the leaders in your youth group or your children's ministry have, like, say, in Queensland, blue cards and uh, other states and territories have their own, uh, you know, screening processes where people are able to work with children, 
that's not in itself a guarantee. You've got to be able to take these other precautions. Yeah, very much so. So I think even over the last 10 years, um, churches and organisations are getting better, but we have all, um, you know, possibly been guilty of being over-reliant on working with children checks. And, you know, even our research indicates to us that having a working with children check does not protect your children. You know, it. We we don't know everything that's happened in people's past. Um, some of the the states and territories here in Australia um, have point in time checks without continuous monitoring, and so they might have the tick, you know, on the day, <laughs> um, and they might have the ability to continue to monitor, um, you know, any criminal activity. These are the working with children organisations, government departments. I'm talking about. They might have the ability to continue to monitor any, you know, further police activity, but unless your organisation is essentially linked in with that working with children department or the police or you know things along those lines you may you know be exposing children to some risk that that you're not aware of and while we're talking about churches right now uh, this as you're saying alicia puts the responsibility actually squarely on the shoulders of parents to keep these communication lines open with your kids because your kids aren't just going to youth group or they're not just going to the children's activities in church they're also meeting friends at the shopping center they're also going off to sporting clubs they're also going off to various get-togethers where there are uh, people who were their friends from school and uh, or older brothers and sisters they're also going to their friends homes all of these things create risk Yes, very much so. And even online environments as well, you know, that's that's some of the riskiest areas for our children at the moment. And so, you know, one of the, the tips that I was alluding to um, before is around really monitoring these communications, monitoring what your, what, what your children are doing and having these conversations and being as involved as you can in their extracurricular activities and asking some of the hard questions at times that kids find really annoying that I even know as, a, as uh, previously <laughs> found it very annoying when my my parents were asking me these sorts of questions, but being as involved as you can um, is definitely one way that we can help protect our children. Is the hardest conversation you have with your child or your teenager, that initial one, where you break the ice and where you mention uh, all of these risky things that can happen to your child, does it get easier after the first conversation? I mean, where are you having that conversation to? Is it round the dinner table or are you sitting down in the lounge room or are you going out on a special, you know, dad's date or, you know, mum and dad together with your child? What's, what's the best way to break the ice and is it easier after that initial meeting? I think there are so many ways in which you can speak to your child in which they listen. You know, if the the best place for you and your child to have a conversation without any other interruptions is in the car, have that in the car. <laughs> um, you know, if it's if it's around the dinner table, um, if it's if it's at home within the privacy of you know your own environment, then then absolutely find the place that's the best way for you and your child to connect. And then having those those difficult conversations, and they they will be uneasy. And some of, even with my ten year old young man, I've had these conversations, and he seems very uninterested in what I have to say. So trying to make it age appropriate and engaging um, is always key as well. But um, some of the possibly most difficult parts of the conversation is if you get yourself in trouble, please trust that I am here there. I'm here for you and making sure that they understand that. Um, Because as I alluded to before, um, you know, some of these people who are engaged in predatory behaviours are very, very good. And, you know, children might find themselves in a situation where they're feeling threatened and blackmailed and, you know, they're worried about what mum and dad are going to say. So having a conversation that really, really presses onto the child, no matter what happens, 
come and tell me. You know, getting that across to children, you you can tell them about the risks and you know hope that they understand. Um, but really, having them understand that there, if there are any issues, please come to me, and you're not going to get into trouble. I like your thoughts. Have the conversation in the car. You've got a captive audience, <laughs> but. When you say sometimes teenagers look at you blankly and uninterested, uh, I wonder if you've been sort of contemplating what's happening in the mind of that child who's actually having this conversation with a parent. They're actually not uninterested, are they? They're actually very interested, especially if they've found themselves in a vulnerable position. Yeah, definitely if they found themselves in a vulnerable position, it will be a trigger. It will be, you know, very scary for them. Um, there's a lot of trauma involved and especially like, you know, some of the things that we've found of late is the trauma that's involved with child exploitation material. Um, you know, it's not just a child, you know, previously it was referred to as child pornography and I apologise if I'm not allowed to say that no, <laughs> at can. this time. You, you um, so previously child pornography was what it was um, labelled within our legislation. It's now been uh, relabeled as child exploitation material because child pornography sort of indicates some kind of consent or children posing in, you know, kind of an explicit way and there's not really a lot of trauma involved with that so child abuse material is exactly what it is it is constant abuse of a child putting them in a very vulnerable very traumatic situation and so if you are, are having conversations with children who seem very un- uninterested you know that they may be because they think this is never going to happen to me or on the other it, other side of it you know potentially you're, you're talking to someone with a lot of trauma even if you think just taking a photo in their bedroom and sending it off to someone um, may not be traumatic for everyone, but I would suggest that it's absolutely traumatic for children. Let me just ask you, and we won't, we won't spend a lot of time on this, just uh, getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but uh, while we're talking about adults in leader roles, knowing what to look for and what sort of policies to have in place, Our kids here have the opportunity to take responsibility because oftentimes it's children sharing pornographic images with one another uh, inside or outside of the school grounds. And this is a whole area where there really is not something you can easily legislate because the kids don't know, but they're actually exposed to these things from other peers. Uh, That's got to be a concern too. And so you're actually, as a parent, no doubt, getting your children to take responsibility for what they're what they're exposed to. Yes, very much so. And having those, those are very difficult conversations to be having. I thankfully have not had to have that um, too many times at this point. Uh, my, my young man is growing up though and, and I do need to have those those particular conversations and, and my husband and I have very much started that, which is a very... Uh, you know, it's it's an eye-opening conversation to be having at 10. <laughs> yeah, um, right. You know, I was never aware of any of this sort of stuff was happening when, when I was young. But um, trying to find age-appropriate ways to talk to your children, not just about the dangers that are out there to them from adult predators, but, you know, discussing with your children, your friends are going to be showing you things and this is what's inappropriate and this is what's appropriate um, within this context. And the fact that it's not just an image being shared, but the image leads to a changing behaviour. And so our children are exposed to all sorts of things that come from the exposure to the pornography, which is going to endanger them in a dramatic way. Hey, we've been talking about those tips for parents. Uh, What about tips for organisations? So you've got someone who's listening to us today. uh, They're involved in their youth group leadership. Maybe they're not the actual leader, but they're a volunteer. They're there on a Friday night or they're leading children's church on a Sunday. 
what sort of tips can we have for organisations here about getting on top of these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Neil. Um, in terms of organisations, there is a lot that organisations can do. Um, but the best way to prevent you know, any type of child abuse or neglect or exposure to risk in your organisation is very much through your culture. And so there are three elements with you know, very dynamic and very reciprocal relationships that can provide holistic and integrated approaches to child safeguarding. And so it really starts with strong committed leadership. So what is being filtered down um, through from the top? Um, what are your safe, safety management systems as well? And so when I speak to that, I mean, you know, what are your policies and procedures? What is your record keeping? What is your holistic strategy that's in place? Um, and as I suggested before, it's not just ticking the boxes and, you know, having a policy, but having, you know, what is your overarching strategy for keeping children safe? And then strong stakeholder engagement as well. So listening to the voices of children, listening to the voices of parents as well, um, because children actually have a lot to say in regards to what makes them feel safe um, within an environment. Um, some of the other uh, top tips that I've got here is making sure that you're you're creating a child safe organisation that's very open. It's very transparent. Um, it's accountable to everyone, and you have regular communication that's so you know blatantly obvious um, to all. Um, as I said before, including all people in creating your culture and creating your child safeguarding strategy. Um, specifically, looking at what risks are there within your church. Um, and so what I mean by that is what are your organisational risks? What are your physical risks? What's your environment um, that you're working with? And really documenting how you can manage the risk in, in that particular environment. Uh, so just uh, let's pause here and talk about risks for a few moments. Does this mean uh, whether you live in the city or the country or uh, if your church has had some sort of history in this area where there's been uh, an abusive culture uh, or if you know that there are people who are connecting with your church, you've got some uh, some issues here. Uh, what about this uh, looking at the risks? How do you identify those? Yeah, so it's very important to have a look at your demographics. So who is actually coming to your church? Um, is there more of a, a different culture um, coming to your church? Is it more Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander? Have you got a big Sudanese population? Um, so having a look at you know potentially some of the risks that come along with certain cultures as well, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that, um, there's, you know, that one outweighs the other um, in terms of populations. Um, it's l- having a look at physical environments as well. So what is the physical structure of your church? How open is your kid's church? Do you have glass in the doors and you can easily see in? Or is it a completely closed environment? Um, you know, how much engagement do you have online as well and what you do in person should really be transferred to an online presence as well so if you've got two leaders who you normally have um, within your church your children's church you also have two leaders who are online you know so essentially really looking at how do we run our church what does it look like and who's there um, and really writing to that risk I'm thinking that I remember from a conversation with you once before the thought that, you know, those who are communicating online uh, through social media and churches take up an online presence in a big way these days. Uh, there's some certain responsibility and some regulations that ought to govern churches and the way we even communicate with kids online. Uh, what are your thoughts there for, for parents who are listening in and thinking, you know, they're, they're regularly getting stuff from our church? And that might be a great thing. 
but it's got to be done the right way. It absolutely has to be done the right way and it has to be done within the right medium as well. So making sure that um, if if your child does communicate regularly with somebody within the church, that you're monitoring those communications as well. Um, Essentially, a lot of the time this communication will be harmless, but it's very much our job as parents to unward any unwelcome behaviour, attitudes, advances, those types of things. And so it's being mindful about how is my child being communicated to? What are they being exposed to? to, um, you know, essentially let's make sure that they are discussing things via Zoom or FaceTime as opposed to Snapchat, which, you know, um, doesn't particularly have the best reputation when it comes to, um, you know, being child safe and child friendly. So So even the platform you choose to communicate with kids and teens who are on social media, uh, making a better choice there and uh, leave that for parents to, uh, well, you're you're mentioning uh, that some of those are less safe than others. Yeah, definitely. So making sure that you're working on a platform. If you're a kids pastor or youth pastor or involved some way within the kids church, it's making sure that you're accountable online as well. And so making sure that you've got the ability to screen who comes in, who can, you know, make comments, who can have conversations, what people can share and can it be recorded? Can you take a note of of who's online and how many people um, essentially as as a leadership group would you normally have in person and kind of transfer that online as well? And, um, you know, even a few of us probably got a little bit too relaxed during COVID as well, pyjamas on the bottom, you know, suit up the top, making sure that you're dressed appropriately when you're engaged in online. Everything that you would do within a physical environment to making sure kids are safe, you're transferring majority of that online as well and then, you know, amping it up. (laughs) It has to be right and it has to look right. Uh, Something else I remember from an earlier conversation with you, uh, that while all this seems to be so hard, uh, it's a little bit like uh, we'll just sort of uh, shuffle that over to the too hard basket because we don't feel like we've got the right expertise. I think I remember you saying every church has people in it who love regulations and love to be able to make sure that everything is done, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. That person is really very special. And some people might be thinking, well, I'm not sure what my gift is in church life. That might be the sort of person that ought to be involved in this area. Yeah, very much so. It's definitely me. I'm total nerd alert when it comes to that kind of stuff. I love researching <laughs> uh, legislation and evidence-based best practice when it comes to you know child safeguarding elements and really anything within the criminal justice system. I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. But I like making sure as well, right, if we have been asked to do these things, how well are we doing it? Can we go above and beyond How can we make it better? (laughs) And if you go to your pastor and say, this is what my gift is, uh, the pastor will absolutely fall over backwards going, I really will, you know, they'll embrace you incredibly because, uh, because looking after some of these things is going to be so important. And when you present that in a context of this is for the good of our church, the safety of the children of the next generations coming up through our church, this is the way to actually grow the church of the future, to have a internal and an external public face that shows that we're interested in the safety of our kids. Let me say how listeners can connect with Alicia Reader white Alicia is founding director of the organisation Equipped for Grace. When people go to your website, Alicia, 
Can they get these tips? Are they easily available? Is there something downloadable? Can you take this to your pastor in your church and say, hey, I picked these up. Have we got something similar? Can we compare some notes? Is that Can that happen? Yes, that's absolutely readily available for everyone. Um, you don't need to enter your email address or do anything special. You can just go on there and, and download you know, the top tips for um, organizations remaining child safe. And one of the other resources that I've got on there at the moment is a policy around domestic violence. So how churches can can appropriately, efficiently, safely respond to any domestic violence within their church environment as well. And that's the whole policy. So I've provided that free of charge. Um, and when it comes to child safeguarding, that's uh, you know a- another area which I'm hugely passionate about, but I've, I've only provided my top tips there. Sorry. You'll have to come back for more. <laughs> and we might have to set a time for another day to talk about your uh, domestic and family violence policies. So we didn't really get into that in a big way today. So for listeners, we'll invite a Alicia back on another day and we'll talk through some of those but certainly today around keeping our children safe you can connect with Alicia at equippedforgrace.com.au and Alicia for anyone around the country uh, you're based in Queensland but for someone listening in Tasmania or in South Australia WA uh, they'll actually benefit from getting this connection with you as well yeah very much so uh, your listeners might be you know very excited to hear I've just done a huge research piece on legislation <laughs> all across the nation so I'm intimately aware of all of the eight pieces of legislation throughout Australia and New Zealand as well wonderful equippedforgrace.com.au Alicia Reader white thank you so so much for joining us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.